Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Hey, you can go ahead and sit down. You know, brothers and sisters, I gotta get a couple things off my chest. Number one, the weather should adapt to us, not us to the weather. And last I checked, it was 70 degrees two days ago. Right? Well, so I grew up in the Midwest and complaining about the weather is what we do. So I'm sorry you get so much of that. Anyway, welcome to our community. If you're new, my name is Mike. We are delighted that you're here. We have a huge value. about how churches are led. There are lots of different ways churches are led, but we, we see not a form or a model in the New Testament, but rather we see cer- certain racial, uh, racial uh, although th- that's in there too, but relational dynamics uh, of mutual submission, integrity, support, reciprocity. And so, you know, the reason that we take time to introduce everybody is, is so that you know there isn't just one person doing this. Because we've seen, we've all experienced failures Uh, of church leadership along the way. Uh, We are going to, this morning, continue on in a series of conversations we're calling the Upside Down Kingdom. And it's it's a riff on Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, that is an explanation in Matthew's account of what it means when Jesus announces that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Remember the core message of Jesus. You cannot find this anywhere. And his teaching is, hey, believe in me, you get your sins forgiven, and you get to go to heaven when you die. What you see instead is, repeatedly, the kingdom of heaven has come here in the person of the King Jesus. So reconsider your entire way of living. Well, what does that look like when it's fleshed out? Well, it looks like the formation of a certain kind of community. And so Jesus begins with a series of things called Beatitudes. They're not a list of how to be blessed. They're not a virtue list that we've got to climb. This is simply declaring the fulfillment of all of these categories of people who are identified in the Old Testament as righteous. The fulfillment of their hopes and dreams for Israel, are, they're now coming true as Jesus takes upon himself the messianic role of teacher and healer. And then he begins to, he continues to bless and give this group uh, an identity, a job description. You are salt and you are light. Old Testament images that carry forward into what this new community would be like in its weakness. Remember this crowd we read at the end of chapter 4 is made up of people who are are having seizures. They're in lots of pain. They're demon-possessed. He has a a group of disciples, many of whom are manual laborers. This is not the best and the brightest of Israel. Israel but it's upon them he conveys the blessings of the messianic kingdom. So today we're going to look at a really thick passage, all right? And um, we'll do Q&A. So Nine had lots of questions. I'm assuming we'll have lots of questions, and we welcome that. You don't have to feel like you got it all together to just raise your hand and say, okay, I don't understand that. Our goal is that you would, um, because the stuff that Jesus is going to say is really important because it defines the rest of the sermon. So for those of you who are in high school or college, this is Jesus' thesis statement about what he's going to do the next couple of chapters, and that's why it matters. And so giddy up, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, ladies and gentlemen. I can feel the energy. I can feel... (laughs) 
the love in the air tonight. Right? Right, babe? They, they should, they should, I, well, honey bear, it is well known that after 20 years of marriage, we share one brain. <clears throat> we, that's what one flesh kind of means. How many, how many tries for Wordle today? Yeah, it was four. That's how we roll. Okay. If you don't know what that is, you're clearly not on social media in any way, shape, or form because good night. All right. Verse, uh, Ma- verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, ladies and gentlemen, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) And we're all like, oh yeah, that's immediately understandable. Um, If you're new to the Bible, this is probably why you're new to the Bible. It's stuff like this. It's like, oh my goodness, what does all of that mean? So, lucky us, we're going to spend about 20 minutes going kind of word by word, phrase by phrase through this. Just to talk about, okay, what this means. Then we'll say, hey, is this clear? Any questions? And then we'll talk about... Uh, how this sorts of, of ha, how this sort of has relevance for us make sense? Awesome! All right, go ahead and put seventeen up there. So whenever somebody says, "Do not think that I have come to do this," what does it mean? People are thinking that he's come to do that. Correct? He's anticipating something that he's either heard or will be accused of. So do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. Now, law or prophets. Law has a very negative word for us. When we hear about law, we think of legislation and, and um, you know, codified rules and regulations. For Jesus, law was Torah. And Torah, the first five books of the Bible, those, that was life. That was light. That was the will of God for how to be his people. Torah, law, was a very positive thing. Jesus never denigrates it. And when you combine law with prophets, you're talking about the vast majority of what we would call the Old Testament, right? Most, most of the prescriptive literature in the Old Testament falls into those categories. So he says, he's just blessed this community, but anticipates a religious objection. Do not think I've come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. Now, these two words are going to occupy a bit of time. To fulfill, excuse me, to abolish the law means to misinterpret it or to not do it, okay? So um, to abolish the law, he also calls to nullify the law or to cancel the law. Any of that means you've misunderstood it and are misteaching it and or you're not doing it. So you can abolish the law in a couple of different ways. You can be teaching incorrectly or you can have heard it correctly and just not do it. Make sense? Now fulfill shockingly, means the opposite of those two things. So fulfill means teach it rightly and do it. Abolish means teach it wrongly and not do it. So when Jesus comes and says, do not think 
I've come to abolish the law. I've come to not abolish it, but to fulfill it. Abolish here doesn't mean the Old Testament's going away and is no longer relevant. In fact, Jesus anticipates that objection. Go to 18, if you would, Sarah. He says, truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will, be, but will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. All right? So whatever abolish means, it can't mean get rid of. He says this directly. Nope. Until everything is accomplished, it sticks around and has enduring relevance. So when Jesus says, I've not come to abolish it, but fulfill it, what he's saying, in essence, now that we understand those words, is that I've not come to cancel it or to, to interpret it incorrectly. I've come to practice it and show you its true meaning. That's what he means when he says fulfill. So he literally is Torah in person. If you took the five books of uh, the first five books of the Bible and condensed all of the ideals expressed therein into a human figure, you get Jesus of Nazareth. So that's what fulfill the Torah means. He's here as the definitive revealer of the heart of Yahweh through the Torah. He's not come to abolish it, to misteach it, or to not practice it. He's come to do exactly the opposite. In fact, he, he uh, accuses the Pharisees later, if you would, Sarah Mark, um, of nullifying the law in Mark chapter 7, I think. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says, thus you what? Nullify the word of God by your tradition. The tradition he's referring to, the Pharisees had a rule that if you had a bunch of property but you dedicate it to God, you could still enjoy the property but not have to use it to support your parents. Okay, so you could devote it to God, still retain use of it, and use it to not bless and take care of your parents, which obviously was one of the commands. And in that way, they nullified. They not only misunderstood it, but they mispracticed it. Are you with me so far? This is fulfill and abolish. God bless us. Now here's where it gets a little wonky, all right? Let's go uh, back to verse 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside, now that's a way to abolish, correct? Set aside. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Stop there, Sarah. Now, he's introduced fulfill and abolish language right here, right? Anyone who sets aside the commands to not do them and teaches others to do this will be called least in the kingdom of heaven because they're abolishing Torah. Makes sense. Likewise, what does it mean to fulfill? It means to interpret correctly and do it. Therefore, next slide if you would. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do you see what he's, what he's saying? Now, there were three of us. I got one more chunk to get through, and then, and then we'll see how this goes. All right? Go back, if you would, to the first part of 19, Sarah. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the what? What's the phrase here? Least of these commands. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen, is rabbinic Jewish language. Okay? Now, this is, this is hard to grasp. But the rabbis, there were 613 commandments uh, by some countings uh, in the Old Testament, and often they would come into conflict with each other. So there was a command to do no work on the Sabbath, but what happens if your donkey fell into a pit? 
Or what, what happens if somebody's life needed savings? Saving, excuse me. So what you would do is that you would rank the commands as heavy or light, or greatest to least in Jesus' language, the English translation here, but it really means heavy to light. So light commands were the ones that you could violate in order to fulfill heavy commands. Make sense? If they ever conflicted, saving someone's life is heavier than keeping the Sabbath. Okay? So they would talk about this. And, and there were two rabbinic schools of thought. One said, well, they both agreed that the greatest command was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then they disagreed over number two. One, one crew said it's be holy as I'm holy. The other crew said love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus actually takes that side when he's asked about it in a later episode in the Gospels. How do you rank the commands he's asked? And then he says, well, the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your hearts from on his strength. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a ranking question. The Jew, this, this filled Jewish discussion endlessly of how in the world, because they would clarify these and groups like the Pharisees would add hundreds if not thousands of regulations and clarifications to this stuff. So when Jesus talks about the least of the commands, he's talking about the lightest. Now, that doesn't mean unimportant, but it means relative to heavier commands, it can be broken in light of what's over here. All right, are you with me? Awesome. Now, you may be wondering, Mike, what is the lightest command according to the rabbis? And we've done some research, our crack team, and we found it. Ladies and gentlemen, right smack in the middle of Deuteronomy. Now, this is what they said the lightest the lightest command was. This is a real thing. If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, okay, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. So can it get any lighter than that? Imagine a nest on the ground, or in a tree, and imagine sitting on some young. You can have the eggs, leave the mom. And then there's this weird tag on, so that you may live a long time. And you're like, what? But that, they said that was the lightest command. Is it a command? Sure. Is it light? Yes. Now, here's a heavy command that has the same promise, right? This is from earlier in Deuteronomy. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. And then here is the same promise, so that you might live long and that it might go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, do you see the difference between light and heavy? We call them the Ten Commandments. Those are heavy. The bird stuff, that's light. It's still a command, but if it ever conflicts with a heavy one, you can violate the light one. Make sense? Sorry, Mom, I'm taking you and, and, and the eggs. I'm sorry about this, but we have to feed our family. Whatever, whatever scenario it would be. All right, now, this is the tricky part. Jesus takes the idea between light and heavy commandments and now applies it to people. And he says, those of you who abolish Torah will be light in my kingdom. And those of you who fulfill Torah, you practice it and teach others to do the same, you fulfill it, you will be heavy in my kingdom. So go ahead and throw 19 back up. That's what he's saying here. That's why it's a little confusing. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside 
one of the light commandments and teaches others to do the same, it's a wordplay, will be called light in the kingdom. And anyone who practices and teaches these commands will be called heavy in the kingdom. Now, first, it's fascinating that heavy is a positive thing. Love that. Then secondly, <laughs> if you're still, we had lots of questions last service about the light and heavy distinction. Does that mean not important or not worthy or not worthwhile? No, no. When you think of something as weighty, right? When somebody says something and it's like, ooh, that was weighty. What's that mean? It has kind of an authority to it. There's a depth to it. There's something really true about it as opposed to something light or cliche, right? Well, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who proclaimed themselves the heavies of the kingdom. We're the ones interpreting Torah correctly. And what Jesus is about to say is that, no, you're actually the ones who are light in the kingdom because you're nullifying the law. And this group of ragtag misfits who will follow me, they will be considered heavy in the kingdom. It's the flip of all the righteousness grading that was going on in that culture. So that's why in 20, Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. Now, my friends, okay, give me five, seven more minutes, okay? And then we'll be through the worst of it. It's dark and murky waters. Now, let's talk about the Pharisees, all right? We use Pharisee as a bad word. Pharisee in the first century were considered the righteous remnant of true Israel. These were the people who, after the exile, said, hey, disobedience got us into exile, and so obedience is going to bring us back to the land and keep us there. They added hundreds and thousands of clarifications around the 613 commandments in their zeal to have God rescue the nation of Israel from the pagans. Right? It'd be, me like, it'd be like me saying, hey, your righteousness must surpass that of Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we would all go, well, we will not be in a, in their, into the kingdom of heaven. They, I guess they'll have a great conversation with the Trinity, right? I mean, there's just, we'll be somewhere else. I mean, that's the examples they were to the rest of Israel. And when Jesus says, your righteousness, now righteousness, guys, this is a big deal. Righteousness here does not mean obedience to the rules. It doesn't mean moral purity. Righteousness means justice. It's a social reality of shalom. Okay, that's what righteousness means. And Jesus is saying, my community's righteousness will surpass that of the very thin righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, the scribes and Pharisees took this great understanding of righteousness, and literally it's tzedakah. In Hebrew, it's this incredible word, and it's all over the place. It's the hope of the prophets. It's the warnings of the prophets. It's the hope of the poets. I mean, it's just everywhere. The Pharisees reduced tzedakah, righteousness, into three practices. Almsgiving, giving to the poor, fasting, and prayer. Let's say it together because this is really important. Giving to the poor, fasting, prayer. One more time. Giving to the poor, fasting, prayer. What Jesus is saying is that skinny view of the mighty righteousness of the Torah is not representative of the kingdom of heaven. And that he, as the true fulfiller of Torah, will show us what true righteousness looks like. Are you with me so far? 
Okay, any questions on this? And, and they are absolutely welcome. Makes sense so far? Yeah. Great, great question. Did the, did, did the people know the Pharisees were corrupt or did they see them as perfect? What, what, so this is in the Galilee, which is in northern Israel. The Galilee, where Jesus ministered, was the home base of the Pharisees. And the Galilee held a very self-righteous view of themselves as compared to Judea, which is around Jerusalem. They saw that the temple complex and the priesthood and the Sadducee system was hopelessly corrupt. The Pharisees were the ones that people looked to as examples of righteous behavior. So to hear their righteousness must be surpassed would have felt either like, well, there's no possible way, or, ooh, I guess we don't understand what righteousness really is. So the Pharisees, the one thing they did do is that they categorized everybody who was not a Pharisee as somebody who was called a sinner. Sinner didn't mean you did things wrong. Everybody who was Jewish knew humans were flawed. So sinner didn't mean that. Sinner meant not part of the Pharisee group. So for them, and, and the reason they were resented, I mean, they took, like for instance, in their zeal, they took the, all the dinner rules for priests eating the sacred sacrifices and applied them to themselves in Galilee, around common meals, and so they get mad at Jesus when Jesus says, do the right hand washings. I mean, these were the religious elite, or so thought themselves to be. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to simultaneously show us what the rightness of the kingdom looks like as he's systematically dismantling the righteousness project of the Pharisees. Does that answer your question? That is a great question. Thank you. Anything else before we move on? Or, yes, Abby. Yes. What a great question. So what is righteousness? Um, righteousness, so we think of righteousness as God is righteous and that means morally perfect. And certainly that's true. But righteousness had a social meaning. We hear righteousness and think it's my individual behavior on a moral scale. Righteousness for the Jews was how a community related to its poor, how a community related to the, the, the oppressed, to a community that handled power and money and wealth well. That's what it meant to be righteous. And so righteous had a much bigger view than just the three practices of the Pharisees which was prayer, fasting, giving to the poor. Does that, does that help, Abby? Great. Anything else? This is highly, highly encouraged, by the way. Because guess what? You don't have to take my word for any of this. The, the goal isn't that you would just swallow this, but the goal is to make the Bible strange again for some of us who've heard it a lot, and so that we would dive back into it with perpetual curiosity. So that's, that's why. We were just big fans of questions, doubts, concerns, whatever. Okay, I'll take your silence as this is the best sermon I've ever heard, and we will continue. <laughs> now, all right, all right, one, all right, I know I said this before, but one last part. 
So what Jesus is going to do, if you want the thesis statement of his sermon for the next two chapters, it's your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's going he's to give two critiques to the Pharisee project, six examples of the first critique, three examples of the second critique. The first, uh, the rest of chapter five is the, is the first critique, and then chapter six is the second critique. All right, so let me explain these. Chapter five goes on. Susie's going to talk about this next week. Chapter five goes on, and what Jesus does, he does this six times. He takes a light command and juxtaposes it with a heavy command to show there is no light and heavy in his kingdom. So what he'll do, and Susie's going to cover this, so he'll take a command like this, Sarah, do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Now, a, a command, yes, and certainly something good, but not heavy. And Jesus is going to take that command and juxtapose it to this one. You shall not murder. We'd all agree that one's heavy, correct? So what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Hey, Pharisees, the new covenant God promised through Jeremiah was a covenant of the heart. It is not enough in God's righteousness to just not go around murdering people. You cannot proclaim you're righteous just by not murdering. Because murder deals with what? The heart. Hate. Contempt. Anger. So he's going to take what was thought to be light, do not hate in your heart, and do not murder what was known to be heavy, and say, the division between these two is not how the rightness of the kingdom works. The rightness of the kingdom works, is, of what the kingdom does, is a rightness of the heart. Are you with me so far? And he's going to give, go ahead and put those, the, those two statements up, Sarah. No, go back, if you would, to like the number one. There you go. He's going to give six examples the first, and, and you've heard these most of you before, right? He's going to talk about divorce. He's going to talk about lust and adultery. He's going to talk about oath-taking. But notice what he does. The first three of these begin with sayings. You've heard that it was said to those in ancient times, and it deals with three different laws from Exodus and Deuteronomy. Laws around murder, adultery, and divorce. All right? The next three begin a bit differently, and you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, and then it deals with laws from Leviticus, oaths, retaliation, and love of enemies. So Jesus, remember, he starts this whole thing by saying, I've not come to abolish Torah, I've come to fulfill it. What's fulfill mean? To show you its true intent. The Pharisees claim to be the true interpreters, and I'm telling you they're light in my kingdom. And he's going to give two examples of their lightness, of their abolishing Torah. The first one is that the Torah of Jesus is a Torah of the heart. The goal is not a bunch of conformity to an external set of rules. And so in chapter 5, we get six examples of that. You've heard it said, but I tell you. It's not enough. Sexual, sexual ethics isn't enough just to not commit adultery. But to work on objectifying others in your mind. Keeping an oath isn't just about, well, not making an oath by the temple, but it's about not manipulating people verbally. And all of a sudden, this gets into the real nitty-gritty parts of human life. It's almost like he knows us, you know? Does that first point make sense? 
The second critique he gives, and this is where you know he was ruffling some feathers. Go ahead, chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your what? Now, who's he talking to? Who's he addressing? Who's he having in view? He's talking to the crowd, but he has in view the Pharisees, right? The righteousness of the Pharisees. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others in order to be seen by them. And he's going to talk about three acts of righteousness that the Pharisees loved. I'll give you three guesses. Fasting, prayer, giving to the poor. I mean, it's genius. We just think, oh, he's just, these are just random statements pulled out of nowhere. No, he is dismantling. I mean, you talk about deconstruction. I mean, Jesus is deconstructing the most weighty, self-proclaimed, righteous approach to the Torah. Right in the middle of this. And so he'll say things like, listen, it's not, that it's, it's not bad to pray, but if you pray in order for other people to see you praying, then truly, whatever people think about your prayer is all that you get from your prayer. If you post on social media just to get likes, then the likes are all that you get. Right? He will say, but the rightness of the kingdom, the righteousness, the justice of the kingdom is what's done in secret. That's what's interesting from God's perspective, not the grandstanding of the Pharisees. And he introduces a word, hypocrite. And we're all familiar with this word. We all hate them, and in so hating them, we indict ourselves when you agree. Because here we are. We hate the hypocrites in the church. The problem is wherever we go, there they are. And so, right? I mean, it's just how it works. And hypocrite, and this, I could be wrong on this, but in my research, we don't have any record of hypocrite as a negative word until Jesus gets a hold of it. Hypocrite was a word for theater. Jesus grew up near Sepphoris, about 4,000 miles away. It was destroyed by Varus. Like 3,000 Jews were crucified in that city when Jesus was a kid. Because his dad was a tecton, we translate it carpenter, but it's a worker, a builder. It can be with any sort of material. We think Jesus and his dad would have worked in this massive building project. And there was a huge theater. And in Greek theater, you wear masks. So if I'm, they were all men, and so if I'm portraying a woman, I wear a female mask. If I'm laughing, I'm wearing a laughing mask or a sad mask. A hypocrite was somebody who just wore a mask. That there was a difference between their real face and the face they showed everybody else. Jesus grabs a hold of that and applies it to the most righteous group. And three times he says, don't be like the hypocrites who announce when they're praying these grandiose prayers, or, or they blow trumpets when they're giving money and build, name, name buildings after themselves. They didn't do it then. We certainly do it now, right? And don't do these flashy, religious, judgmental prayers. Just simply pray our Father in the heavens, right? What he's doing is he's proclaiming the rightness of his kingdom against the righteousness project of the scribes, the teachers, and the Pharisees. Are you with me? So this is how the whole sermon fits together. Now, what he's going to do in seven is really interesting. But that's how the next two chapters fit together. Now, any questions on this before we talk about how in the world this relates to my life? We're good so far? Awesome. Yes, sir. James talks about if you've broken one sin, you're as guilty as if you've broken the whole law. Okay. 
Yeah. Sure, but that was new. It's, it's hard to summarize that question. Doesn't the teaching that all sins are equal before God um, that we receive in the New Testament, doesn't that sort of erase this light and heavy distinction? Correct? No, 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 no. You did great. It's just tough to summarize in a short sentence. And, and I want to be careful here because Jesus does side with one group against another in ranking. And obviously, they had a different understanding of Torah than I think we do. Um, and and there, there are massive cons- like difference in consequences uh, between lust and murder, or anger and murder, excuse me, lust and adultery. But Jesus is making this point in a uniquely Jewish way that James, James is Jewish and writing to Jews, so he's making it, but he's assuming the teaching of Jesus before he gets there. This is the revolutionary stuff that would have been, what? Are you sure about this? And Jesus is setting himself up as the determiner. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. It's my, it's my, so I'm fulfilling Torah in this teaching. Does that make sense? Great question, ma'am. All right, question for the group. Do we? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, there were no. That's a great question. Were they sacrificing different weights based on the, the the weightiness of the sin? They understood sin a lot differently. We understand sin as transgression of a moral code. They understood sin as pollution. So the sacrifices were designed to cleanse the temple from the pollution of sin. And so, I mean, there's a whole sermon there, right, that we could preach because that's the that's that's the use of sin that Paul adapts. We hear it very individualistically, and we hear it as failure on some righteousness scale. There's this gap between me and God, who is a holy God, and some jump a little farther than others, but we all fall short. For for Jesus and Paul, they come in to that conversation in a fully Jewish way, understanding sin much differently. So we've got some unwinding to do. So the the and the, so the offerings. They weren't paying for sin in the way that we typically think they were. They were bringing cleansing and renewal to the community in the temple. So like Day of Atonement wasn't, hey, we're forgiving all the sins of Israel. It was cleansing the temple and cleansing the high priest so he could fulfill his duties the rest of the year because of the pollution that would accrue. Man, there's a lot more there. Great stuff. Question for you. What? So... You know how Rudolph was the victim of reindeer games? How do we play in Pharisee games in uh, Christian circles today? Because it's easy to make the Pharisees the bad guys, but they were the, considered the most righteous there. So how do we play righteousness games? How do we have the same rightness kind of projects? Any thoughts? Justina Renee. Oh, fantastic. Okay, her answer is grading of sin. I might be doing this, at least I'm not doing that. Right? Oh, 
This is the favorite youth group question of all time. How far can I go? Right? Here's the line. And, and, and the old rightness of, of the unhealthiest forms of purity culture was, yep, there's the line. If you're, be, if you're behind it, you're good. If you break it, you're bad. That's old, the old righteousness. Right? And we could get into the new one, but that's exactly right, Justina Renee. The, the excusing, you're playing the light and heavy game yourself. Right? I excuse my sin by focusing on the heavier sin of somebody else. And Jesus flips that when he says it's your speck, or it's the speck of sawdust in someone's eye, and it's a plank in yours. My sin is the heavy sin, your sin is the light sin, and if all Christians agreed to approach each other that way, man, we'd get a lot, along a lot better when you agree. So this, I mean, man, he's digging into right where we're at. Yes, Justy Bear, you are a woman of great virtue. How else do we play right, righteousness games? That's a great answer, yes. I know it's tough to top. You may be hesitating, but I mean, what? Oh my goodness, yes. Cultural and political ideologies. There is a new form of righteousness that has infiltrated the church today, and it's around your political opinions. And man, that's when you know we've created idols. Because... I think that my brothers and sisters in Christ, if they have differing political views, have less in common with me than people who are not Christian but share my political views. And that is not at all how Paul envisions the church functioning or its identity. Right? So, I mean, literally, there are righteousness games we play all over social media. Something bad and big happens, and we immediately all rush to condemn it, to speak against it. Why? Because it doesn't matter if you're actually practicing anti-racism. As long as you're seen to be anti-racist, it's okay. And so we just engage in corporate virtue signaling. It doesn't matter if I really love my neighbor as long as I pretend to. Right? It doesn't matter if I really love my enemy. I mean, it's, it's all the games we do. I'm the head of all of this. I am the chief reindeer game player in all of this. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, one more. Any, anyone think of another? Oh, so good. Yes. Oh, that's good. Can I, I need to fire up a slide. That is so juicy. This calls for a slide. She was saying, ranking Protestantism, Catholicism, all the denominations. And for a lot of us, we grew up in church environments who only knew how to bring people together by bashing a common enemy. Right? So the unity of a lot of church these days is based on having, an, a, having a constant enemy we're preaching against. And there we're unified. That's not the unity of Jesus. The unity of Jesus is in his person and the table and the, the kingdom. So here are forms of righteousness that work in my heart, right? There's doctrinal righteousness. I have an opinion on every little thing. There's no room for mystery. There's no room for other opinions. It's like you either see it this way or you're not biblical and therefore not a Christian. Moral purity. And, and we've reduced purity to just sexual righteousness. Man, purity in the Old Testament was so much bigger than that. We've done the Pharisee thing. We've taken righteousness and narrowed it down to sexuality. 
Boundary lines. Hey, did you go to church today? Were you, I grew up in a church where you looked at people who didn't go to church as the lost. And they were the unchurched, as if the church was their salvation, you know? Or virtue signaling, we've covered that. You don't have to be righteous just to be seen as righteous is what, and what matters. And then our, politi- our political views on masks, vaccines, the former president, the current president, that has been infused with religious significance to our shame. So one of the ways we play Pharisee games is we just create new forms of righteousness that aren't of the heart. Another way that we do this, just a couple more examples, and it's the one that Justy was saying, we grade sin. I'm, I might do this, but I'm not doing this. And anytime someone comes up to me and is like, hey, when are you going to preach against this sin? I'm always like, that's a great question. Let's talk about whatever you're struggling with first. And then we'll get to anybody else, right? Because isn't that the order? The plank here. So, and, and one of the ways we grade sin is that we think there's some righteous end that we're going after and we can use any means to justify. So there's a political end we want and it doesn't matter if we're mean, if we're awful, if we're unkind, if we gossip, if we slander, if we're divisive, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if we're labeling and demonizing. None of that matters because that is righteousness. And what Jesus is going to do to us is say, no, 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 that's not how righteousness works. Righteousness can't separate means and ends. Unless you're doing Jesus' work, Jesus' way, you're not doing Jesus' work. So yes, for those of you who are big and right to life, fantastic, but do it without anger and contempt. For those of you who want to campaign against, you know, and we could get into all the hot political issues. Fine, we're in a, in a nation state that invites our opinions. Hallelujah. But if our involvement causes us to violate the Sermon on the Mount, we're nullifying the teachings of Jesus, no matter how right, right we think our cause might be. And then, here's the best one that I do. I love to ignore parts of the Bible in favor of other parts. This is a subtle form of grading. But have you ever noticed, and I'm not speaking of you. You guys are wonderful. (laughs) Stereotypically, I'm speaking only in stereotypes. Do not take any of this personally. But stereotypically, conservative Christians spend a lot of time around sexual ethics, but they don't talk a lot about the poor or about racial division. And, and progressive Christians talk a lot about the poor and racial division, but don't often take Jesus' sexual ethics seriously. Now, that isn't you, but I'm saying that's one of the many games that we play. Is that I have the parts that I find easy and that I see as really significant, and I have the other parts that, you know, at least I'm not doing whatever. And so we're the community, friends. What Jesus is going to invite us into It's not more rules. No. It's not more lines. It's not more boundaries. It's not more virtue signaling. He's inviting us into a kingdom that transforms the heart. And it's a transformation that comes slowly and over time. So Jesus isn't interested in our boundary keeping. He's much more interested in the progressive openness of our hearts toward the things of his kingdom that manifests itself in real, live, tangible action. It's not enough to just read the love your enemy part, but to then do it, that's fulfilling Torah. And as it turns out, that's the better way to be human. 
Remember, salvation, the way Paul spells it out, is the restoration of the image of God. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The image of God. Well, where's the image of God come from? It's Genesis 1 and 2. It's the loss of our image bearing. That's what's restored in Christ, among many other things. And so the invitation of Jesus is to take upon his easy yoke. Why is it easy? Not because it's simple, but because it's the invitation to be truly human. To forgive people is actually a better way to be alive. Right? To learn to ask forgiveness is a better way to be human. It produces shalom when people are open to reconciliation and truth-telling. Right? So this isn't onerous. This isn't a whole new list of things we got to do now. Well, dang it, guys, we could just get away with not murdering. Now we got to worry about anger. That's the wrong way to read this. He's undercutting so many of the current expressions of Christianity that I have not only grown up in, but I myself have conveyed. He's presenting something completely different. It's something Paul calls the life that is really life, and it takes a long time to get there. So if you're like, hey, I've never heard this before, great. Don't take my word for any of it. Study it for yourself. The text is like a gem that you can forever find new facets in. So we're going to practice today. What I love, we, we do this every week. We have stations around the room. Yep, come on up, Steph and Tim. We have stations around the room. At one of the stations, or at all the stations, we have communion. And obviously, this is our COVID-friendly cup. You're all invited there isn't, a, there isn't a gatekeeper at the tables. Whether or not you've measured up your enough righteous points to be able to partake, you are invited. But as we do it today, I wonder if as a community we could do it, saying to God, hey God, I'm really open to whatever it is you want to reveal on this journey that we're on. Like, I'm not going to come into this defensive around the walls that I've erected in my faith I want to actually come in curious and humble. I want to receive this, even if it challenges me. Because it's just going to. The kingdom of God is disruptive wherever it bursts out. And that's great news. Because for those of us who aren't super happy with the status quo of human life in the world, we're ready for something else. And so perhaps as we take the bread and the cup today, we can just simply sit in the promise of, okay, God, I open myself up to the whole thing, not just the parts that I like. We also have at the stations pieces of paper where you can just write down prayer requests. I know we talk about this all the time, but it's such an important part of our community. You have no idea what it's like to walk in here knowing the kind of pain that sits in this room. It changes the way we do everything. And that your honesty is such a blessing for those of us who have all sorts of reasons to pretend that we're more holy than not, to realize, fantastic, this is an entire community of people who are hurting. And no one ever has to apologize for that. So if there's a thing we could pray for, if there's a thing we could celebrate, we'd be honored to do that. So we're just going to open up some space and some time. I know... I love the Q&A, but it forces the sermon talk a little long, and maybe you're thinking the talk would have been long anyway. I totally understand that. Um, but we're going to just take several more moments to sort of open ourselves up to whatever it is that, that God would want to do in our midst. So, Father, thank you for speaking words of comfort and words of challenge. Thank you, God.
for the, for the manifestation of the kingdom in and through the person of Jesus so that we know what it looks like when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we are a community who very imperfectly, but nevertheless, wants and desires to progressively more and more look and act and talk like you. So to that end, God, would you receive our worship now as we respond in the name of our Christ, amen.